What does it mean to be a man in the 21st century? What can we learn from people who study and work with men? Why does focusing on masculinity matter? These are some of the questions we are here to answer. I'm Alex Bove, inviting you to talk like a man. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, whenever or wherever you are. Welcome to Talk Like a Man. I uh, I want to get right into it today. I want to get right into this interview. It's a, a wonderful, wide-ranging, deep interview with Dr. Tom Schiff. Um, first, I want to just tell you a little bit about Dr. Schiff. Uh, he's the founder and executive director of Fallacies. And uh, that's the thing that we're going to talk mostly about. But let me tell you a little bit about it now. Um, through training, consultation, workshops, presentations, and performances, Fallacies engages men in critical conversations and direct action to challenge mainstream ideas of masculinity and foster physical and emotional health and community well-being. Uh, Tom has over 35 years of experience working with men and boys on issues of health, leadership, violence, race and racism, sexual harassment, sexism, and homophobia as an educator, counselor, and consultant. Uh, he works with organizations ranging from public school systems to small local nonprofits to healthcare organizations to Fortune 500 companies and to the National Football League. And he had some really interesting things to say about working with the NFL and, and, and sports in general. Tom was the founding director of the UMass Amherst Men and Masculinity Centers and continues to serve as an adjunct faculty member in women, gender, and sexuality studies at UMass. He's also the recipient, congratulations, uh, I forgot to congratulate him during the interview, but I want to say now, uh, he's also the recipient of an Innovative Initiative Award from the National Association of Student Personnel Administrators for his work with fallacies. And, uh, you know, we talked about uh, fallacies a lot. We, we talked about our feelings about terms like toxic masculinity. Um, we talked about sports. We talked a little bit about Dr. Schiff's own story. Um, so it was really wonderful, again, uh, I think wide ranging interview. And then the only other thing I'd really like to say to sort of, as a sort of a preparation for you all as listeners is that this interview, um, uh, Dr. Schiff, uh, is in, uh, as I, as I said in the introduction here in Amherst and I'm here, uh, in Philadelphia in my home studio. Um, and so I had to use zoom and the sound quality was inconsistent, I tried to edit out as much as I could and even it all out. And I think, you know, I think it sounds fine, but obviously I uh, just wanted to let everybody know that there will be some inconsistencies. So please bear with me and and uh, bear with us both, because I really think that it's worth it. Uh, Dr. Schiff had some amazing things to say, and I'm really, really looking forward to you hearing them. So without further ado, here's my interview with Dr. Tom Schiff. Welcome to Talk Like a Man. Tom Schiff, thank you for joining me. My pleasure. Uh, I wanted to talk to you first and foremost. Uh, you're the executive director of Fallacies, and uh, I know a little bit about this, but not a lot, and my listeners know nothing. So um, could you tell me a little bit about what is Fallacies? What do you do? Sure. Well, Fallacies, and by the way, that's with a PH for the <laughs> listeners at home. Um, Fallacies is a men's health dialogue and theater program. What that means is that we do dialogue on a variety of issues related to masculinities, uh, intersections with other identities, um, health, um, relationships, violence, and then out of those dialogues, we write performance pieces. Usually the pieces are anywhere between three to seven minutes in length, and, and we string those together and out of that, we create uh, up to, we've done an hour and a half performance or smaller ones as well. Um, our perspective is that we are, come from a, a, a pro-feminist, a male positive, and multicultural perspectives. Meaning mm. that we try to, we believe that um, gender is something that is clearly an impact on our lives and an analysis that comes out of a feminist analysis what helps lead to think about that. We also have a belief in men and belief that um, men inherently uh, want um, healthy and positive things for themselves and others. And we've been very um, deliberate about trying to create a group that is 
fairly diverse, particularly in regard to race and sexuality. Um, so I'm, I'm curious a little bit about the process you, so you, you interview men one-on-one and then you develop these no. pieces. No, it's a group process. Okay. So we meet on a weekly basis for three hours. And during those three hours, typically we'll do sort of a check-in. So, I mean, this functions also as a, as a bit of a support group for the, for the members of the group. So we will check in with each other and then we'll get into whatever the topic is. And we may do some sort of um, uh, icebreaker, experiential activities, something to get folks kind of into whatever that topic might be for the night. Um, and then we'll do a more sort of formal sit in a circle dialogue about this. Um, that's generally about the first half or so of the meeting. And then after that, depending on where we're at, meaning um, we may do some writing. We may then say, okay, so let's write about this topic. And, uh, or we may be a different point where we're actually rehearsing because we have a show coming up. And as far as the, uh, the writing goes, our written pieces or the pieces that make the performance are generally speaking, I'd say pretty much a hundred percent come from our own experiences and or perspectives. So we're not just writing something to write something. Usually it comes from our own experiences. And did you, I, I, I read on the website that you, so this started, this whole project started just as a men's group and then the performance piece came later? No, so this started actually, um, this started as an outgrowth of work that I did when I used to work at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst. Mm-hmm. And um, it must have been 15 years or so ago. Um, I had these two graduate students who worked for me. I was a health educator. I had uh, one of the programs that I supervised was health outreach to students of color and on campus. And I had these two uh, women who were working with me and they wanted to create a program that they ultimately called body politics. That was, um, as they said, a response to the vagina monologues. They felt like they wanted it to be, something that was very um, women of color centric. And they created this incredible program. And, that, and as their supervisor, of course, I was hearing about it. And every now and then I might have, I'm not trying to take any credit for it, um, but I might have like a little bit of input or a little bit of, uh, I might have to lead interference here and there. Uh, but mostly they just did an amazing job of it. And um, while they were doing that, I thought to myself, I'm going to do this with men. I've been working with men and boys you know, my entire career really in a variety of capacities. And so, so I need to do this with men. And so it took about five years for me to get the right pieces in place to get the, the support, the, the um, institutional support really to mm-hmm. build enough connections that people are like, Oh, okay. We, that makes sense rather than why do you want to do something like that with men? Um, and also to get some of the right personnel. So, um, Dr. Taj Smith, who at the time was not Dr. Taj Smith, he was just Taj Smith, um, came and was a doctoral student, and I had I had an open assistantship, and he was studying masculinity, and um, so it was a perfect uh, joining there. And then there was another uh, man named Dennis Canty, who was a returning undergraduate. He'd been in school. I'd known him for several years, and then he left school for a while and then came back. And Dennis has incredible amount of experience with theater and Taj's work was more around dialogue and the, and yeah, I think it was an African-American studies major as an undergraduate, I believe as undergraduate. Um, and so it was just a nice connection for the three of us, the, the juxtaposition of that. And as soon as we started doing the work, um, we knew we were onto something. We could tell that the, the people who were in the group were really, charged up by what we were doing. Now our purpose was in creating a group was wanted to have it be a support group on one level, but also we wanted it to be a group where the men were doing something to speak up and speak out about their experiences, to share their experiences, but also because it was a college campus, there was also, you know, we needed to have them talking about things like alcohol use and violence and relationships and sexual assault and, um, but also offering sort of healthier alternatives and offering different ways of thinking about it. Cause just telling people what not to do 
is not a very sound educational approach. Yes, um, yes. Just yeah, so you know. I, no, um, I remember. Yeah, and I remember. Um, I remember studying behavioral uh, health models, and and almost all of them. You know, self-efficacy is one of the top things in almost all of them. You know, you can't you can't tell people that they're horrible and expect them to change. You have to sort of give them um, positive intrinsic motivation to change. Right, and offer some alternatives. You know, we have a piece that we've, so Fallacy is now 10 years old, and it's moved out of the university, and it's now a nonprofit, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and we work with um, schools, um, both, you know, middle schools, high schools, colleges, conferences, human service organizations. Uh, we go anywhere. Um, and, but, you know, we have this one piece that we actually started, and it's changed a number of times. It was in that very first year that we were doing it. We wrote a piece called The Confrontation. There's a version of it on our website, um, which is actually an older version, and we're working to update to get a, a newer version on there. But because um, there's some information that's a little shaky, I'll just say. <laughs> um, but, but the piece of it is about two men challenging friends who are being abusive in their relationships. Hmm. And, um, and it's two sort of separate but interwoven conversations. But the point of what I'm getting at here is that Part of what it is is offering some language for men to be able to say, you know, if you're in this situation, and it really could be for anybody, but we're, our focus is on, on men and masculinities, to say what you're doing is not acceptable. Here are some other ways to think about this. Mm-hmm. And to be able to offer language to men, people who are watching this to go, oh, because part of it's also I care about you. You're one of my best friends. You know I want better for you. Mm-hmm. I'm worried about you, you know, those sorts of things rather than what you're doing is wrong and you need to stop. That's not going to do anything. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm curious. You, you mentioned there was some resistance to the program in some ways in the beginning. And I'm thinking this is, this is maybe, was this all the way back in, uh, in the nineties? No, it would have been in the uh, sort of mid to early to mid two thousands. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about stories that I've heard uh, and, and, and things that I've been told um, about this sort of question of, well, do we really need to focus on men's lives? <laughs> do we really need to focus on, you know, um, uh, men's stories? What was, I guess, what, you know, why did you think it was so important to do that? Well, uh, just to, respond to that. I mean, I think that's, that is a very 90s way of thinking about things. And I think yeah. that there's still some uh, left over for sure. And I think it depends on how you think about it. I think if you're centering men's lives as sort of the norm or what should be um, in the same way that if you're centering white lives, you know, it's or, or heterosexual lives or whatever, you know, it's it's problematic in that way, but to be able to offer some analysis, I mean, I think that one of the things that the feminist movement has been very successful at is, uh, is again, teaching us a gender and not just the feminist. Well, this, you know, it's, it's such a feminist movement is such a broad term, right? So there's so many different parts of that. Um, but the teaches that gender is such an intricate part of who we are and that all of us have gender. Mm-hmm. So for us to think about what that means and for us to think about that also from a perspective of and how does how are the ways in which we are as men uh, how is that hurting us and how is that also perhaps hurting others and what are some ways that we also are being that are healthier can be healthier for us you know, it's interesting. Um, I was having this conversation. This is a bit of a digression, but I assume we're going to digress. At <laughs> oh, sure. I like digressions. So one of the things I was, you know, I was having this conversation a while back, and I've had it a couple of times, um, but back in the fall, I was talking to this man, and he was talking to me about the work I do. And he said, so you're kind of in the same field as Jordan Peterson. <laughs> and I'm assuming you know what I'm talking about. Yes, yes. Uh, so, yeah. And I thought to myself, and I said, actually, you know what? I am um, not in the sense of um, I'm not in the same arena. I mean, it's not in the same ballpark as he is, or, so to speak, but I think that we are both our work um, is an effort to 
save the souls of men to be kind of melodramatic there. Um, Cause and I think we probably would even use some of the same data points in our analysis, right. To talk about how, you know, men who buy into uh, a particular construction of masculinity, I'm not sure he would say this, but um, that way, but that we would, that we um, have higher rates of suicide, addiction, um, all kinds of health issues, you know, I could go on and on about that. It's where you go from there, right? Rather than trying to blame um, a group or groups for your, um, the issues that you have is to look at the larger system and say, the system is dehumanizing to us, dehumanizing to all of us. Here are the particular ways that it dehumanizes us. And if we buy into it in certain ways, we also do get certain benefits and privileges but there's a cost for that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I've often said uh, I've often said the same thing about the the so-called men's rights movements or these other movements that they're looking at the same data we are, we are, and and they're looking at the reality that a lot of men's lives are harmed in a lot of ways, and there are a lot of outcomes that are not so good for men. But they're drawing a different conclusion, right? They're drawing yeah. the conclusion that therefore we need to go back to these old ways and, and things like that or um or like you said we need to blame feminism or we need to blame women or something like that and we're looking at it and saying well no we agree with the data <laughs> but we want to have a different way forward for men yeah. right right because going back to the old way actually um will reinforce the same sorts of i mean if, if the same sorts of health issues the same sorts of um and by health, I'm talking about both individual and community health. That's mm-hmm. not going to change anything if you continue to go back to the same way. That's what got us here in the first place. Mm-hmm. Which I think is what's sort of exciting in some ways about the conversations that have been happening um, in a broader way about um, masculinity. I'm not a big fan of the term toxic masculinity, but that seems to be the, the phrase that's getting out there a lot. But just be able to have the conversations about the unhealthy aspects, unhealthy aspects of masculinity. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not a big fan of that term either. Um, could, you, could you say a little bit more about why you don't like it? Um, it's a little, it, it strikes me as being really binary. Uh, it strikes me as being very, um, there's healthy, there's toxic, and there's untoxic. Versus, um, I'm part of this system and I've absorbed all of it. And so there's ways which I can try to detoxify myself, um, but there's still going to be those influences and those things and those ways in which I operate that are not going to be perfect. Um, and, and, and it's an ongoing journey, right? I mean, the, the, the journey to, um, to end oppression, to end dehumanization, um, it's, I, it would be lovely if it was over in my lifetime, but I don't suspect that to be the case, but it would be nice. Um, but in the meantime, it's, like I said, it's an ongoing journey. And, and uh, I think what it does is, the term toxic masculinity strikes me is that it, it, um, it sets up a us versus them kind of dynamic. And that, that's, I think it's really more of just about us. Mm-hmm. What do you think about it? Yeah. I mean, I agree. I think that I don't like, I don't like the binarism of it. I don't like that. Um, I think I'm just generally not a big fan of, of framings that are, that start with that sort of negative, I mean, what I heard in, in some things you said earlier was this sort of positive vision, this vision of improvement, this vision of re- maybe repair, but that even, that, that, that even implies a negative. And so, yeah, I don't like the idea of starting out with sort of, here's this toxicity that you need to purge. It's more, here's, for me, it's more sort of, here are all of these alternatives that you can embrace. Yeah. That you probably you may not have known existed, but here they are, and let's talk about them, and let's support each other, and let's let's support ourselves in being uh, reaching our potential. Yeah, a couple of things. I mean, one is I, I think there is a piece of it that is about healing, um, or you said repair, but I think there is a piece that you know, on an individual and protect perhaps collective uh, level too around um, healing from all the damage that has happened to so many of us. Hmm. Um, I used to train men to go into schools um, to do workshops and they would do it in conjunction with the women's center. And um, so a lot of these guys hadn't been in high school in a long time. 
And so we would do some of the training in the high school. We'd meet in the evening and we'd go there and we'd sit at the desks and, you know, someone would be a little uncomfortable. I'd say, okay, let's take a break. And we'd go down to the gym and we'd play dodgeball. <laughs> that got people going. Some of the more athletic, um, sort of traditionally, whatever that word is, uh, athletic guys um, were like, oh, yeah, let's play dodgeball. And some of the other guys were like, oh, I don't want to do this. So this brought up a lot of stuff for me because I was the one who was always getting the ball whipped at me. You know? <laughs> um, so I think there's a piece of that. The, the other part that you said, which I really like, um, is about alternatives. And, you know, we, we do a lot of framing, at least within our dialogues. Um, we actually use the term hegemonic masculinity. Yeah. Um, which is really more about systems and more about the, sort of that, that this is the, the vision of masculinity that we're being given that we're supposed to do. You got to be tough and stoic and unemotional and in control and so forth and so on and so on. And um, yeah, if that's who you are, I guess maybe that could be okay. But on another level, there's so many other ways to be in the world. So let's expand it, you know, rather than um, and, and see what the alternatives are and expand and, ex- and, and accept it's just a multitude of masculinities. Yeah. And even, even I, th- well, the way I think about it is also even certain characteristics that we traditionally frame as masculine absolutely have the potential to be harmful for both men and the people around them, but they also have the potential to be helpful. And I think, again, that sort of that framing of toxic implies, well, you know, for example, um, emotional stoicism. Yes, in many, many ways, that is a bad thing for all kinds of, you know, inter in, uh, relationships and, and, and intimacy and things like that. But there might be times when emotional stoicism is a value. And to me, I think rather than talking about these as intrinsic qualities of a human being, these are, these are uh, oh, I read, uh, I think it's Jones and Hesacker, but they talk about um, state-like versus trait-like characteristics. Yes. Yeah. Right. And to me, that framing is just, so eye-opening and so much better than the idea of like the, here's the here's the inherent masculinity masculine traits no no here are situations in which you might exercise these characteristics but there are other situations where you might not and there are other situations where that's harmful and there's other situations where it's not and i to me i think that's just a much more nuanced way of looking at it yeah i really like that that perspective because i think that um and it, you know the there's so many characteristics and they're human characteristics. We happen to value them in people in certain bodies. Um, and that's problematic. Um, you know, or we name them differently with people who are different bodies. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think like you said, like, um, stoicism is, if that's the only way you are, that might be challenging for you in terms of making connections with other human beings and having a deep intimate relationship. Or perhaps it's not. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't know, really. <laughs> I mean, I feel like the, I feel like most psychologists say that. Although I found some other interesting stuff in my research about the idea of um, face-to-face intimacy versus side-by-side intimacy, mm-hmm. and that there are. Um, so the idea, you know, that most psychologists will think that if we're, if we're face-to-face and we're talking and we're sharing secrets and we're, we're sort of looking at each other and we're sort of, that that's the only thing that counts. But there are other people who say, well, you know, we could just be sitting next to each other at an event or we could just be in each other's presence. And that might, for both of us, be seen as a really deeply intimate thing. And they're not necessarily separate. I, I have a, an old friend and we used to go to basketball games together. And so we would sit there side, you know, side by side, like parallel play of sorts. And, you know, we'd be sharing about our lives sitting there in the arena, you know, punctuated by standing up and yelling when a great play was made. Um, <laughs> and it's like, so what else is going on with your daughter again? You know, or, uh, <laughs> you know, those sorts of things. Um, and so it, it's not, yeah, I think there's a value that gets placed on certain kinds of intimacies um, that I'm not so sure is, again, that, that, you know, it can be, that can be kind of binary as well, right? There's all kinds of different ways of connecting with folks. And I think that's one of the things that's been really fascinating working with 
young men around masculinity that some of them are like, I want to, I don't want anything to do with that old stuff. And other guys were like, I'm actually okay with being a big sports fan and chopping wood or whatever, (laughs) you know? And, and, and I also want to have some deep emotional connection with people. I also want to be healthy. I also want to support uh, women and trans folks in my life, et cetera, et cetera. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. So somebody just asked me the other day, um, it was at the panel. They asked me as uh, one of the follow-up questions. Um, do I have I seen a change, or do I think there's a change among young men? You know, for let we could use the word millennial, although obviously there are reasons why that might be problematic. But do I think that there's there are significant changes in the way they see masculinity? And I had my own answer, but I'm curious, based on what you're saying, do you think, let's say, in the last five years, have you seen real changes in the men you work with? It's a good question. Well, um, you know, yes and no, right? And I say that because I think that the men who get involved with fallacies are men who are seeking out something different. Yeah. Right. You know, so I think that inherently those guys, there is, there is a difference. Although I would have to say there's not necessarily a lot of difference between the guys who I was working with 10 years ago in fallacies and the guys I work with now, maybe a little bit, but not much. But there's, you know, just because some of the conversation has changed in our culture. But I think that they're looking for something. I think that there's a lot of men who are looking for something different. I also think that there are plenty of young men who continue to do the same old, same old, and um, and aren't questioning um, what's going on and around gender, around masculinity. They see, they see plenty of models of... Um, unhealthy masculinity in say our national leadership, for example. Um, and, and think that that's okay and think that that's the way that they want to be. Um, and, and there's also plenty of men who are really challenging and changing some of that. You know, I mean, I, I do work in athletics. Um, I've worked with the NFL, for example, and I've seen just a change there in six or seven years of, guys who are coming in and there's still the guys who just have no clue. I mean, that's, you know, that's my judgment. No clue is the wrong way of saying that. Um, Just haven't really thought about it. You know, Mm -hmm. haven't had to think about it. Haven't wanted to think about it. Um, Live a a fairly cloistered, um, sheltered life in a certain ways uh, because they're so ingrained in, in a particular culture um, that they, they don't have time to do other stuff. And there are some of them who also absolutely take that time and look at things differently and can talk more about um, issues related to uh, gender equity and equality and, um, uh, and violence prevention and things of that sort. I think the Me Too movement actually has had a huge impact. And that's not that the, I realize that Me Too has been around a long time in some ways, but the larger sort of, cultural phenomenon of that explosion that happened about a year and a half ago um, because of Harvey Weinstein, um, I think has had a huge impact on a lot of young men. And there's, and there's some um, research that backs that up. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious about the, the, the idea that you expressed, if I heard it correctly, that some of the men that you work with there, there's some resistance, resistance to sort of, um, really thinking hard about gender or about masculinity or about these issues that you're talking about. You said, I think you said for some of the men, it could be, cause you said something like it's the, for some of the men, it's the first time they've ever had to think about this or they've been challenged. Well, again, with fallacies itself, I think that that's probably not the case. I think that, I think with fallacies, the men who come into fallacies have thought about things and mm-hmm. are, have, have been looking for something. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, when I'm talking to middle school students, for example, um, they're struggling in some ways. Some of them are, they have these ideas of how they're supposed to be, and they see the ways in which our culture gives support and uh, nurtures um, kind of that more traditional way of being. And, and some of them are really um, 
want to fit into that and some of them don't and some of them want to fit into parts of it and they just you know there's just not a there's not a really healthy broad conversation about it i feel like and so it's fascinating sometimes to see some of those guys and you know and and also i mean i've worked with men as well who have been when i again when i was in higher ed one of the things that i would work with i would work with men who violated uh, community standards and code of student conduct you know so those guys weren't seeking out well, I'm going to go talk to the guy, you know, this guy and learn more about masculinity and see how I can change myself. I'm going to this guy because I'm being punished because I did something wrong. Um, and so then my approach would have to be, um, yeah, you did, did some things that were problematic. How can we think about different ways of doing that? And some of them would be like, wow, that's, I had not thought about that, but that's actually pretty interesting. And some of them were just putting their time. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was talking about, um, uh, I'm on the board of directors of the Men's Center for Growth and Change in Philadelphia. And um, one of the things we've been working on, actually, this podcast in some ways is part of this new direction that the organization's going in. Um, because we, the, the organization does a lot of work on intimate partner violence. Uh, and it's a lot of court mandated men who come in for counseling. And our executive director said, you know, I want the center to also be a place. I want the center not only to be a place for men who've done something wrong. I want to also make sure that we're reaching out to men who are, um, who are just seeking to sort of learn more about masculinity or men's issues and haven't come to this through, through doing something wrong. Right. Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, in, the, in the 90s, early to mid 90s, I was one of the um, co-directors of an organization called the uh, Men's Resource Center Western Massachusetts, which is no longer sort of morphed into something else. But um, it, uh, we had, um, there was a batter intervention program, which was certified by uh, the state. Um, I was, I coordinated the um, uh, outreach, educational outreach programs. We did work in high schools and middle schools and elsewhere. Um, that was that was when I was training men to go into schools and making them play dodgeball, and um, and then we had a, a we had programs for uh, fathers. Um, we had a men's group project where we taught people, kind of trained people how to do men's groups essentially. And there were definitely people who were seeking out, like you're saying, it's like seeking out how what are some ways I can be, you know. And even some of the folks who ended up in the batterer program, I mean. Um, some of them actually did not want to be doing the way they were doing, but didn't know a better way or a different way. Um, and over the course of 40 weeks, because that's what the program was, um, uh, some of them would start to change. And actually, it's been it's interesting. I mean, um, some of them actually continued on. There was like follow-up groups, and they would stay for years. Mm -hmm. I even became a facilitator of the program. Hmm. You know, so I think that there's, there's definitely folks who are looking for different ways of doing things, but I think it's important what you're saying is to keep it, keep thinking about, okay, so we're not about punishment. We also have to be about hope, mm -hmm. about change, about, it sounds very Obama of me, um, <laughs> um, to be, and, and to be about you know, holding up a vision of how we, we can and want to be. Yeah. I also think about, you know, the idea of prevention as not necessarily, I mean, on some level we could frame it as we're preventing some horrible thing from happening, but we could also just say we're preventing people from developing patterns of thought and behavior that could ultimately lead to negative things. Right, right. Well, I mean, you think about it, like there's a huge focus um, around consent. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. And so this is not about teaching people what not to do. But teaching people, here's some ways to engage in, I mean, if we're talking about sexual consent, because I actually think consent should be taught about life long before we're really talking about sexual consent. Yeah, I agree. But, um, but if we're talking about sexual consent, you know, let's, let's talk about, not about how do you um, stop when somebody says no but how do you have conversations about what is it you want? What is it you like? Um, mm. What feels safe? Um, what do you want me to do? Those sorts of things. That's consent also, right? But, but I think it often gets framed as if somebody says, no, you stop. 
mm-hmm. which yes, that's a good thing to learn. Of um, course. Um, but that, but it has to way beyond that, which I think is part of what you're talking about. Yeah. And I actually think that, you know, when I, when I teach consent, uh, sexual consent, I always think about, actually, I think we do a, 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 an okay job in society at large. I mean, people know how to navigate, oh, we're a group of us are going out to have a meal. Like I'm going to advocate for myself and I'm going to listen and maybe we'll compromise and we'll decide what we're going to do. Like, I feel like in a lot of non-romantic, non-sexual contexts, we, we value other people's consent and we want to have a mutual experience. But then, yeah, when we, when we come to romance and sex, suddenly these whole different set of scripts come into play and people, as you say, people I think often <clears throat> throw all that out the window and then it becomes this, this whole other thing. I think there's a part of that. Uh, now, if we're talking about men and I realize men aren't the only ones who need to learn about consent. Um, <laughs> um, but, I, you know, I think there's a level of sort of that traditional masculinity that um, teaches us that we're supposed to go for it and get what we want, get what we want when we want, mm-hmm. right? And so when we're, so now we're in a sexual situation and there's also more primitive parts of the brain that are operating too, right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, and so there's a level of that, that it's a, it's a, it is a toxic mix, you know, just to throw that word back in there. Um, you know, it, I think that it's, unless we're really thinking about it, um, it's so easy to fall into that kind of a pattern. This is what I want. I'm horny. I want this. This other person seems like they might want it too. I've seen all the movies that tell me I'm supposed to be suave and sophisticated and know everything I should know about sex without ever having to ask. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm 18 years old and, um, and or 45 years old or however old, you know, and, um, and therefore I don't, I don't want to engage in that. And talking about it seems like maybe it's kind of boring. Yeah. I feel the mood because it's never what happens in movies. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or yeah, movies and, and popular magazines and, 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 you know, yeah. So many things that tell us, no, it's a turnoff to talk about this. Why? I mean, we're, we're talking about things we are, we enjoy and we're trying to get to know the other person. Like, why is that a turnoff? I don't understand. <laughs> but, right. Yeah. But because, we can, because we talk about when we're starting to get to know somebody, we talk about everything. Right? Like we share our lives and we talk about all the stuff we've done and so forth. But there's that one piece, we get to it and somehow there's this huge barrier there. I mean, you know, we, I mean, I, I live in Massachusetts, so it's easy for me to say that, you know, that I come from a place that was started by the Puritans. Um, and, and I think that that spreads out through a lot of our culture. You know, it's still, I realize it's been hundreds of years, but there's lots of things that we did hundreds of years ago that still impact our culture, um, obviously. Um, and, and I think that's one of them. I think that we have this kind of culture where we live that puritanical perspective on things still, particularly around st- issues around sex and sexuality. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I was actually, I mean, yeah, thinking about the impact of, 100 or 150, 200 years ago on cultural norms, I think of um, Kimmel's work on 19th century masculinity and uh, colonial masculinity and how sort of the, some of the modern, a lot of our modern tropes of masculinity come out of the colonial era and then into the 19th century. Yeah. And, and thinking about that in regard to then also how that impacts um, uh, issues around how, when you start to intersect with race and what are the, what are the, issues around masculinities and power that are there, you know, as well. Um, or, or sexuality, um, class, all those, all those issues, how they all tie in with that. And I think, you know, we have a, we have a big history to deal with. So. Yeah. Yeah. And it's hard when these things are so deeply rooted to say, Hey, let's, Let's start with, let's have a whole new paradigm, but we can't just reset all of society. So we have to shift the paradigm, but then how do we do that? It's challenging. Well, I think part of how we do it, you know, and obviously this is my own bias, but is through dialogue, through ongoing, deep, honest dialogue. Um, And I think that's, for me, it's one of the big challenges that I see in our country right now because we've become so um, split 
you know, that we're not talking about things. We're, we're, we're dividing up into camps and my way is this way and your way is that way. And so no matter what you say, I'm going to disagree with you. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I think we have, my belief is there's so much more commonality that we actually have and what we want um, for ourselves and for others that if we can just find ways to have some conversation about it. Um, yeah. Yeah. I was thinking of the, not just partisanism, but, but sort of, um, I, I was very influenced by um, group dynamic theory and in-group out-group theory and stuff like yeah. that. And I feel like that's just, oh, it's just even within, you know, even within the political right or within the political left, you have all these splinter groups that are advocating for their own position and they're not listening to each other. And uh, yeah, I agree. I think, I think that's, I think we need to have more dialogue. Yeah, I think that, I think we, because otherwise we end up even within our own camp, like you're saying, we end up having, we end up eating our own. Yeah. You know, you didn't say that the right way. I'm sure there's going to be somebody listening to this is going to think that we're not saying this the right way. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure. Um, and that's fine. I'm open to the dialogue about that. You know, um, I, I don't think my way is the right way. I think it's a way. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's the other piece. Of it. I think that, you know, part of the work that we do with fallacies is it's a very particular perspective. I mean, depends on, I mean, because we do stuff from our own experiences, who is in the group makes a big difference. Uh, make, yeah, it makes, makes a big difference in terms of how we do things and what we do and what gets talked about and then what gets written and then what gets performed. Um, and so it's, it's been an interesting um, journey to watch the different members and different groups and different configurations um, do that work. But in general, our work is, is somewhat about looking at kind of um, the more traditional construction of masculinity and critiquing it for sure. And also trying to pick out some of the things that we think are okay. And then also offering, like you were saying, alternatives and different ways of doing things. The piece has been really fascinating for me is that over the years, um, tried to get, and this is, I I would really be curious about your perspective on this because part of what um, has been really challenging is to get men to talk about what they like about being men, Mm -hmm. you know, and it was interesting this past year we had a, a young man who was in the group um, who brought that up. I had brought that up several years back with a different group, different configuration of folks. And like we wanted them to write, we want to have a dialogue and write something about what we like about being men. And the pushback around it was, so we talking about what we like about male privilege. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe that's what you're going to write about. Maybe that's what you want to talk about. But, there was such a, a, a grasping of, of this, you know, an issue, uh, hard, to, hard to grasp that. And this young man this year was saying, why don't we have something where we're talking more about what we like about men? Mm-hmm. And yeah, let's, let's do that. And we still haven't written that piece. <laughs> yeah. It's a really fascinating question. It's one of the questions that I ask in the talk like a man interviews. Um, I ask, what do you, what do you like about being a man? And then I ask, what are, you know, what's a big, what are some big challenges for you? And yeah, it's so interesting because I find, I found that some men take that question as an opportunity to say, I don't like anything about it, you know, because they, because some men I think feel so oppressed by hegemonic masculinity that they, they, they've spent so much time trying to kind of get away from it. So when you ask, what do they like about it? They, 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 they're very oppositional. But then, as you said, there are men who also might say, well, X, Y, or Z, and then they're sort of aware, oh, but, but boy, is that one of those qualities that's nice for me, but not so good for other people? And, and, um, and then that can be an uncomfortable realization. And it, it is interesting yeah. to me that you're right. I don't know that there are very many good answers to that question that are sort of um, that aren't either steeped in privilege or steeped in trauma that the men, the, the person that you asked the question might have. I agree. I mean, I think, you know, for example, I, you know, if somebody asks me that question, I, I often, when I talk about it, I often, I, I like the permission I have. So now we're talking about privilege, mm-hmm. right? Um, the permission that I have uh, um, to be in my body and to be really physical um, in, in all kinds of ways. And, 
uh, I, my hope would be that everybody gets to do that. Like, I, you know, so I like that. And it's one of the things that I like about being a man being, and being masculine. And I also understand that our system doesn't necessarily allow everybody to be that way. Yeah. Um, and to feel that way. And so is that about, I'm liking it because it's a privilege or I'm liking it because it's something I, because it's something I have um, and don't have to contend with otherwise. Um, but it's not, a, but I don't think I like it because others don't have it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I, and I certainly would want anybody to have that. And it's been actually interesting to, over my life because when I was in, in uh, secondary school, I mean, Title IX had just come out and a sense of how old I am. And, and, um, and, you know, like women's sports, for example, were, un- it wasn't like it wasn't, there weren't women who were athletic, but it was much less common. Mm-hmm. And nowadays I feel like it, that's changed and it's beautiful to see. You know, to see women um, engaging in athletics in all kinds of ways and being sort of in their bodies and expressing themselves in that way. And I think that, you know, um, I think of the next, another, and we're not, I think at an equal level yet, but I also think that another layer of that then is to think about what does that mean for folks who are, don't easily fit into that binary and how do we um, engage those folks and allow, allow for lack of a better word, um, uh, them to be so that they can embrace that as well in different kinds of ways, whether it's, you know, I mean, like this whole thing, I can't remember the, the runner's name from, she's South African. Oh, yeah, uh, Castor Semyana. Yes, yeah, right. You know, because she has too much testosterone, so she can't, you know, she has to reduce her testosterone, although, yeah. Really? Well, what is that about? You know, we, all, we have human, there's human variation. What, like, what's, who cares? Um, obviously, people care. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I mean, and that's, yeah, I was, I was thinking about, and then I I also think about structural issues related to that too. So not so much in that example, but I think about um, chess because I I enjoy chess Mm -hmm. and that there, there's a whole rank of women's grandmaster and women's international master and women, there, there are whole, there are titles in chess that are just for women. And then there are the sort of titles in chess that we all know, you know, grandmaster, international master. And one argument, and I don't think the argument is that women aren't as good at chess. I think the argument is that um, because historically women have not been welcome in chess and because there aren't that many women who can legitimately make a living and um, play at, at the, I, I'm going to use at the top level, not because of ability, but because the, the systems don't exist for them, right. um, that women can't achieve the rankings that would be necessary to get a, a grandmaster title or they, they can but it's much harder for them to achieve those rankings and so the idea was well we'll make these women's rankings to sort of account for that and it's like well i guess that might help get more women into chess but is is that really ultimately is that really ultimately what we want you know do we want to have this two-tiered system it's a right. difficult question it is a difficult question i mean you know think you know if you think about that in regard to things like that as well as things like um you know, again, like going to think about running again, you know, like there's the, the women's marathon champion and there's the men's marathon champion. And I'm not a marathon runner, so I have no idea, you know, what, what that's about other than, you know, that's sort of the, I mean, women didn't used to be able to run in the Boston marathon, for example, or any marathons, I'm guessing, mm-hmm. um, you know, and then again, what will that mean as um, uh, we continue to understand that, Gender is not such a binary thing as we like to have, have believed for so long, you know, and, and so, or, or many of us have liked to believe that and how that impact systems, not just things like chess and running and sports and so forth, but all kinds of systems. Yeah. You know, yeah. Even the way I, we talk, you know. Oh yeah. Yeah. There's, there's that, there's that interesting research. I know it's very old now, but there's the research from the eighties of sort of the idea of, um, gender, gender miscommunication being due to sort of um, language, you know, language barriers, even within the same language, language barriers. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Some of that Deborah Tannen stuff you're talking about, or uh, I think. Oh, I'm. You're putting me on the spot, and I'm just yeah, blanking. Sorry, sorry. It was, it's old. It's the '80s. You know, yeah, so. something like that. And I, I don't think I don't. Big, 
I don't think that's entirely true anymore, but I think that there, there's something to be said for um, the way that we're socialized in impacting our language in significant ways. And then I do think that sometimes that can, that can impact gender, you know, the gender communication. It's hard to know how much of that is, is still present and how much of it's not. And I say it because, you know, I mean, I, I live in a little progressive bubble in Western Massachusetts. Right. Mm -hmm. And when I'm out in other places, I mean, there's, you know, there certainly are pockets that are much more traditional. And I think that's part of, I think that is part of the culture challenge that we're having in the U S and beyond also. Um, but it's like, is again, what do we want to hold on to and what are we trying to get rid of and how are things changing and why are people having a hard time with some of that? So yeah, it's hard to know because I do think that there's places where some of that still is solidly ensconced. Um, so, so I think I should have asked this question at the beginning and we're sort of yeah. nearing the, we're sort of nearing the end, but I'm actually curious. Um, uh, thank you, first of all, for sharing everything about fallacies, but I do, I was curious, just how did you get into studying men, working with men? You know, what was your, why, why did you make this your life's work? Um, well, that's a great question. Um, I think there's a couple of things. I think one is that um, I grew up with a feminist mom. Um, and I think that, so ideas about gender and feminism um, were always present in our house. Um, and, um, and my dad, uh, I don't know if I would have called him a feminist, but he certainly um, had some pretty um, liberal ways of thinking about things, I guess, for lack of a better word. But I think really the better word is that he was just supportive, you know, and, um, and he was, and he was actually in regards to sort of thinking about alternatives to hegemonic masculinity I think he offered some pretty good role modeling. I think there's some places where he didn't, but again, we're none of us are, where it's all a journey for all of us. Right. <laughs> and I think generationally and, and generationally, I think that he um, fit into the generation of uh, men of his generation also in a lot of ways. Sure. You know? um, so, and then uh, when I got out of college, I started working in, um, residential treatment. I was working with young boys who had been taken out of their homes because um, uh, they'd been abused. And, um, and I think that led me down a certain uh, path. And then, um, and then um, I also had um, a partner who was a survivor. Um, and Sort of seeking out support for myself um, during her recovery, and I needed to find support for myself because I, I knew that she wasn't the person who could support me in, in supporting her. Hmm. Right? It just wasn't an appropriate thing to do, and and I think that that actually led me to um, places like the Men's Resource Center, um, where you know and it was it was a fledgling organization, and and but finding people who were actually starting to look at things like this. And I'd always kind of thought about things like, you know, some of this anyhow, but it's kind of led me to a very specific path. Um, and it felt like um, doing this work felt like home. Hmm. You know, it felt like this is what I um, wanted to be and needed to be. And it just continued to sort of feed me, I think. And this was the focus of your, of your um, academic work as well? No, <laughs> not at all. I mean, I mean, yes and no. I mean, I did some of it, you know, when I was uh, doing my doctorate, I was certainly involved with stuff around um, doing workshops around men and masculinities. But my um, doctoral work was really about um, group dynamics and um, ways in which humor impacted, ways in which group development impacted the way that humor was used as groups go through stages of development. So no, it wasn't about this at all. I mean, but there was like sort of a parallel process going on of doing my professional work and my personal work that was more around masculinities. Um, and then my other work that was about how to, was about group process and about group culture and how does culture form. And so in many ways I can look at that now and say, oh yeah, absolutely. There's uh, absolutely connected, but it wasn't very specific. 
immediately connected, overtly connected at the time. Um, hmm. But I can I can see how that could be very useful to what you're doing now. Group process work. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's I think to be able to um, name issues, you know, to name dynamics, to name things that are happening within a specific group, without attributing a value or without attributing a judgment to it and allowing um, then the group, whether it's a group of men or whoever, but allowing us to then look at that and name, name it, look at it and think about why that is, or to give specific feedback to somebody say, you know, every time um, I've noticed that you interrupt more when women speak than you do when men speak, or I've noticed that you, whatever it might be, you know, and then yeah. let people kind of chew on that. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. Now I'm curious. I, I, this is not a rabbit hole I can go down right now, but now I'm curious, like whether the field of group dynamics, I mean, I would imagine that the research in group dynamics has also transformed over the years and now is talking more about these things that you're talking about, right? How does, how does race, how does gender, how do, how does sexual orientation, how do these things intersect? Probably 30 years ago, that field was not talking very much about that. I'm trying to think about that. I, I feel like to some degree, I mean, I think that, I think that we were in my doctoral program. Okay. Um, you know, there was a, um, the, I was, the program that I was in was sort of a precursor to what's now called uh, the social justice education program at, at UMass. Mm. Um, and so there was group dynamics. I was in organization development and there was a group dynamics processes that were going on. And there was some, pieces around gender and race and so forth that were being brought into that for sure. But I don't know how um, specific some of that, you know, how, how generalized that was across, you know, sort of the field. I mean, I do think that a lot of the gender, a lot of the group dynamics, and I know you said you don't want to go down this rabbit hole, so I, I'm, but I'm started. You gave me a carrot. Um, <laughs> um, you know, some of the, some of the early work of um, looking at group process, people like, uh, Kurt Lewin and those folks you know, right after World War II. I mean, they were a lot of them were like, you know, Jewish refugees who came out of, out of Nazi Germany. And so we're trying to understand what was it about these group processes that created um, hate mm -hmm. and allowed these sorts of things to happen, you know? And then I think as you start to talk about those things, you also then, if you're open to it, then you also see how gender dynamics are playing out and racial dynamics are playing out and, power in general is playing out within that so yeah yeah that's really interesting wow yeah now i, I want to do an hour on that but you know not right now <laughs> okay. well I'm, I'm open to talking for another hour at some point but yeah okay. yeah yeah no i know you're busy um so is there is there anything else that uh is there anything i haven't asked you that you would like to be asked yeah, you could ask me if somebody was interested in starting a fallacies program in their community or school, how might they go about doing that? Yeah, absolutely. Yes, I would like to know how, how might somebody start something like or actually a fallacies program? There's a number of things you can do. Um, one is you can start your own program um, and just you, and do whatever you do. Um, and you can't call it fallacies because it's trademarked. But we're also happy to work with folks to, you know, whether it's, a, um, whether it's an, again, if it's community-based, whether it's school-based or college-based, um, to work with folks to help them um, learn about how we use our curriculum and um, uh, how they might get things going themselves. You know, we, we do performances in places, which I, I love doing the performances um, to some degree, but I'm also aware that it's an event and uh, I think that it's most effective when it's coming from within the own, its own community, people's own community, hmm. rather than having somebody from the outside come in and say, here's some things, you know. And so, I mean, that's what part of how theaters, educational theater is most effective, I think, is when it comes from within a particular community. So, um, But we can be reached at our website, um, www.fallacies.org, which is, P-H-A-L-L-A-C-I-E-S. Um, and uh, our, you can reach us through there through an email. Um, follow us on Facebook. Um, but um, I think that 
I w- we would love to see other fallacies programs pop up in different places. You know, we'd love to help support that. Um, whether it's, you know, whether, whether it's called fallacies or not, if it's called fallacies, obviously then there's a particular piece to that. Um, it's not about, it's not about the name. It's about the process really. So. Yeah. I was thinking that, uh, there, uh, the other thing I can think of is the men's story project, which I know also they kind of encourage people to do those in various locations as well. Yep. I've had conversations with them. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah they do great work. And, and, um, yeah, there's is, and they're similar but different. I mean, ours I think is, I think if I'm remembering correctly, is more sort of theatrical in some ways. I mean, not not that they are, isn't there's a theatrical, but ours sometimes are. There's a more directly their stories. Ours um, are our stories, but maybe taken a little more theatrical um, license. Sometimes a little more exaggerated in order to make points. Well, it also seems like the writing process, you emphasize maybe a little bit more of the writing process and the creative process of that. It sounds like maybe the, I, I don't want to speak for them, but it sounds like maybe other projects don't emphasize that as much as you do. I think that's probably true. Yeah. Yeah. I think is I think part of the, the dialogue that we do is like, you know, I, I, the way I named it earlier, I, I was saying that, you know, we do dialogue and then we do writing. Well, the reality is the dialogue continues. You know, I and mean, we're writing, and somebody says, "What about this?" And and oh, and then we'll have a conversation about that. And it's even true within within our um, rehearsals. You know, somebody will say a line, somebody might improv a line because we don't do improv actually. Um, somebody might improv a line, we go, "That's actually really good. Let's talk about that." Um, one of my uh, there was a years back we we have one piece that we do periodically um, called testicle talk. And so there's two of us come out and we're testicles. We don't use costumes. So it's, you know, we have to announce that. Um, and talking about testicular health and we talk about uh, concerns and we, we demonstrate how to do a testicular self-examination sort of, I mean, we kind of talk about it and obviously we're not doing it directly mm-hmm. um, and, and talk about things like, and we talk about blue balls and using that as an excuse to pressure somebody and so forth. But, um, so one day we were having this conversation about about the script and we were talking about it. And one of the guys uh, who was um, one of the testicles says, yeah, I don't know if a testicle would actually say that. <laughs> At which point, you know, I was like, we're doing something right if you can say that, <laughs> you know. Um, and just sort of just to think about what that really means and how it is that we're presenting so, so again, that's part of the dialogue. It, it's, it's ongoing. I love that. I don't think a testicle would really say that. And he, and he said it. He didn't say it anyway, trying to be funny. But he wasn't trying to, and, and he wasn't saying like a testicle wouldn't say that. He's like, I don't think a testicle would say that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's great. Yeah. I can't think of anything else. I mean, I do, you know, there's lots of other things that I do in the world, but I'm happy talking just about this, about fallacies. But yeah. Yeah. But most of my work is around is around um, masculinities, but also around things around race and class and sexuality. But I don't think you can do masculinities work without doing all the other, all those other pieces as well. Yeah, I talked to somebody the other day um, who asked about shame, and and um, I said something like, "I don't think you can work with men and not engage with shame." So yeah, I feel like, and and I feel like, as you say, they're just you can't. You have to understand. I mean, this is true for any group that you're working with. You have to understand the way that people exist in, you know, to use the buzzword, right, intersections. Um, but that's a really important concept because people are not one thing. People are many things. And men are also many things. And it's important to acknowledge that. Yeah. And sometimes those different things, those different aspects of our identities um, um, take the forefront more than other pieces, right? Depending on the situation, depending on where we're at, depending on... All kinds of things. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good note maybe to end things. Um, I want to thank you so much for your time and uh, wonderful insights. And you already gave me the contact information um, for fallacies. And I actually, that's already on the Talk Like a Man page because you're one of the resources that I linked to on that page. But I'll also put some information in the show notes about that. 
Well, well um, I want to thank you for the opportunity to have this conversation. Thank you for the great work that you're doing as well. So really appreciate it. Um, and the Talk Like a Man um, project is really interesting and exciting. Thanks. I appreciate it. Yeah. So there you have it. My conversation with Dr. Tom Schiff of Fallacies. What a wonderful time. What a wonderful conversation. And uh, such a kind and generous man. So many other things that I wanted to ask him. And, uh, well, you never know. Maybe maybe we'll be able to get him on again for a future episode. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Uh, just a few things in closing. Uh, if you want to support this podcast, uh, a couple of things you can do. Some, some, I think, relatively easy and free things you can do. You can subscribe to us. You can give us a rating on iTunes. You can signal boost the, the podcast uh, on any social media if, if, if you have an audience. Would love to get a recommendation. Uh, you can go, obviously, to talklikeaman.net and find out all the social media places where we are. And the other thing you can do if you have the means or the desire, uh, it would really, really help us out if you could support the Patreon, www.patreon.com slash talklikeaman. There are all kinds of tiers and levels and some rewards. I, I really look forward to writing out the thank you notes uh, for the rewards. Uh, I bought a, a fountain pen and I really enjoy the process of sort of writing out those letters. So if you want to have a handwritten letter from me, that's one thing you can do. Another thing you can do is join at the producer level and I will give you credit every episode like I'm about to do to our producer, Gadi Ben Yehuda. Thanks so much for supporting us at the producer level. And of course, thanks to everybody who supports us on Patreon and who's uh, in, the, in the Facebook group. We have wonderful discussions there. So anyway, you can get involved. You're certainly welcome. It's wonderful. I don't mean this to be an ego project. Uh, this is a project really intended to invite all kinds of people into the conversation. As Dr. Schiff and I discussed, we need more dialogue, not less in our culture, particularly around the issues that concern us here on this show. So absolutely, I welcome you to participate in any or all of our social media platforms. And as always, thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time. Talk Like a Man is affiliated with the Men's Center for Growth and Change, a Philadelphia-based nonprofit organization whose mission is to help men and boys realize their full potential to love and positively connect with others. For more information, please visit menscenterphilly.org. To find out more about the Talk Like a Man project, visit talklikeaman.net.